Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Linnica College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Cara Julie Cather, a PhD student at the Leuphana University of Lüneburg. We'll be talking about Cara's experiences doing philosophy in a cultural studies department, her feminist take on the epistemic practices of mathematics, and her thoughts on sexual harassment and violence in academia. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Cara, you can email her at carajulie.cather at gmail.com, or you can follow her on Twitter at, at caracather. Note. In recording this episode, Lewis and I encountered some technical issues with our audio quality. We'll endeavor to be back to our usual standard in the next episode. Nevertheless, enjoy our conversation with Cara. Cara Julie Kata, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Hi, it's good to be here. <laughs> now, if you remember then, what was your first exposure to feminist philosophy? Oh, actually, it was Miranda Fricker's work on epistemic injustice, and it wasn't in a like an academic setting, but a friend uh, told me about it when we actually discussed a poem that I wrote, so very non-academic kind of way of stumbling on feminist theory. But yeah, this this was it, I think. Okay, interesting. I mean, yeah, epistemic injustice is a is a fantastic work, I, and you know, it's made it outside of academic circles, but sort of related to academic circles. How do you find German universities, and how receptive they are to to feminist philosophy? Let's say German philosophy departments, to be precise. Yeah, well, in my experience with German philosophy departments, it tends to still be a little bit difficult, right? There's still this notion of, well, it's it's not really philosophy and this kind of idea that um, actual philosophy or maybe like more general speaking, actual science should not be political or doesn't have like political suggestions or implications or political political convictions behind it. Um, so these kind of notions, I feel like they are still very present and they tend to kind of marginalize and, and exclude feminist philosophy out of what counts to be philosophy. And I have made this, this experience quite, quite a bit. And I know that other people studying like feminist and decolonial uh, philosophy in Germany tend to have like similar difficulties. So I think there's still quite a bit of work to to do there <laughs> until we are like fully acknowledged as being part of philosophy. Mm. But did you know how that um, relates to other departments in German universities as well? Are, are you able to grapple with those kinds of questions in those other departments? I am. Like I'm doing my my PhD actually now at a cultural studies department and I chose to kind of work like in the dissertation to work at an intersection between cultural studies and philosophy so that I could have kind of a little bit more freedom and also kind of political freedom in the sense that I feel like, for example, in cultural studies departments in Germany, it tends to be a little bit more accepted that uh, feminist theory, that this is a thing and feminist science is a thing. Um, so I feel like there are departments or yeah, grants of social sciences where this is already a little bit more accepted than in traditional philosophy, because in Germany, usually philosophy in academia means analytic philosophy, which tends to be like the branch of philosophy that is most skeptical of feminist approaches, although there there obviously is like analytical feminist philosophy, but 
I think there is this <laughs> this this whole struggle, and it it in my opinion it is, or in my experience, it is a little bit better in cultural studies. I'm interested to hear that the focus in um, German philosophy departments is very much on on the analytic side of things, as you said then, because I guess you know a lot of the big continental thinkers have come from German philosophy departments. Do you see? Isn't there maybe been I don't know a shift in recent decades, um, maybe from the continental towards the analytic in German philosophy departments? Hmm. I'm not quite sure like when this this happened, but I feel like right now there's definitely this focus on analytic philosophy being like regarded as the philosophy usually. Um, and that tends to be, in in my view, kind of an exclusion of continental philosophy. But it, yeah, it's an interesting question. Like when did this happen and how? And I really don't know. <laughs> like, I don't have an answer for you there. It, it, it's weird, right? Because it sort of seems like it's going in cycles, right? Because Frege, right? Obviously, <laughs> you know, one of the fathers of analytic philosophy, German. And now, you know, there, there was a, a wave of continental philosophy. And now we're sort of going back to analytic philosophy uh, in, in, in Germany and, uh, and some other parts of Europe, which is curious. Um, but, but yeah, weird, uh, weird sort of cycle there. So you mentioned that you're doing your PhD thesis in a cultural studies department, um, as opposed to a philosophy department for the obvious reason you said you have some more freedom, but I was wondering if there were any sort of pressures to like move from sort of traditional philosophical content and methodologies that, you know, you find when you're doing it in a philosophy department, but maybe there's sort of different methods that you have in cultural studies. Like how do you reconcile the, the, the differences there? Do you find any difficulties there? Yeah, so I think um, because my my university is very focused on interdisciplinary work, so there is kind of this approach to cultural studies basically being the branch where you kind of, you can basically use any kind of methods and choose from any kind of specific branches of social sciences that you like choose to use for for your topic so I am I am working at a department where there is this very kind of broad and interdisciplinary understanding of cultural studies to begin with so this means that actually like in this specific cultural studies understanding and cultural studies department I actually don't have this this kind of pressure because there's still room to like do more traditional philosophy and to use like traditional philosophical methods. There are also people like at the cultural studies department who studied traditional philosophy, like one of my advisors actually did. And yeah, so so actually I feel like because I'm in this very interdisciplinary setting to begin with, I feel like that's that's quite for me, like quite a good zone to to be in because I feel very little pressure to like be in, in this one direction or not to be. Yeah. So, but I think this is because of this very specific understanding as cultural studies of cultural studies that my department has, like kind of this very interdisciplinary approach. Yeah, that sounds really valuable to be able to mix together those methodologies, as it were, from, you know, cultural studies, um, from the cultural studies department, as, as with the philosophy department as well. And, and likewise, by a similar token, I gather that your doctoral research is also bringing together, perhaps not to different methodologies, but certainly two different topics in philosophy, um, specifically your doctoral research bringing together um, feminism, feminist philosophy, and also mathematics. So first of all, what's the link between these two things? 
Yeah, so basically the link, I guess you could say, is feminist epistemology. So this is basically like the branch of feminist philosophy that I am in. So basically anything concerning like feminist perspectives on knowledge and knowing and also like the concepts of credibility, like when is someone trustworthy, things like this. So this is kind of the topic where you have like philosophical epistemology kind of questions and also feminist concerns that that can be raised. And connecting to feminist epistemology is also feminist science criticism. And I am connecting basically feminist epistemology to sociological approaches of mathematics. And I'm basically interested in mathematics as kind of an idea of how thinking works. So I'm thinking mm -hmm. a lot in terms of the term of Gilles Deleuze, image of thought, which is basically this, this idea that you can have like an image of what thinking is. And I am basically suggesting that mathematics is such an image of thought, such a kind of concept of how thinking works. And I'm kind of trying to regard this through a feminist lens and see how our power structures build into the image of thought that mathematics is. Okay, so I take it that there's a kind of, there's a distinctive sort of epistemic practice at play in, in mathematics, and you mentioned power relations at the end of your uh, answer there. What do you think is sort of the distinctive epistemic practice in math, and what do you think is sort of problematic about this practice? And yeah, can you flesh that out for us a bit more? Yeah, thank you, because this is a question that also leads to like the um, basically the decolonial approach um, or the decolonial side of things, because in this kind of feminist or power critical focus, I'm also focusing on the fact that I that basically what we in the Western world or maybe also like even globally tend to call mathematics is actually specifically Western mathematics. Um, and I think that this is interesting, right, because because it's a way of thinking, a way of mathematical thinking that is kind of being universalized, although it is actually a specific kind of mathematics. And there's also other mathematics out there. And this kind of brings me to what I consider to be like the, the content of Western mathematics and specifically Western mathematics. And this basically aligns around the idea of the axiomatic method. And this is something that obviously like a lot of philosophers are, I think, familiar with because the axiomatic method also plays a role in philosophical logic and it is, it is basically this idea that you can have undeniable premises right so kind of like truth that are necessarily true like you can't argue with them they are like forceful in and of themselves and out of those you can kind of deduct other undeniable sentences and knowledges so this this kind of idea of the axiomatic method basically puts forth an idea of a proof being an epistemic practice that guarantees epistemic authority or even epistemic domination. So like think of this idea of logical force and kind of focus your attention on why the word force is in there. So this is basically like a kind of <laughs> a little bit more um, easy way of saying it maybe. So this is kind of what, what I'm interested in is actually how this idea of creating logical force and creating epistemic authority and epistemic domination, how this is kind of being universalized and being legitimated through the idea of mathematics. Does this make sense? This does make sense to hone in a little bit about the um, epistemic domination there um, in the mm -hmm. axiomatic method. What does that epistemic domination look like and what's problematic about it? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so to me, this term of epistemic domination really centers around this idea of making an argument or making like a proof or some kind of epistemic practice, basically logical or epistemically forceful. So I think that this there, there is this idea of force that is built into a lot of Western and patriarchally constructed uh, epistemic practices. And it's basically this this idea of making something undeniable, which which means that obviously like you want to force someone to admit something. And this is what I mean by epistemic domination, right? Because the minute you can you kind of construct something that is meant to make someone admit something, I would say this is definitely like about gaining authority and about even gaining domination. And because this happens in the epistemic sphere, I call it epistemic domination or gain epistemic authority but yeah basically for me it's about this idea of making something undeniable and I would say that there is a huge like power struggle built into this and this is what I am kind of suggesting to, to analyze and to like have a look at basically. I mean that sounds so interesting but I, I sort of have a, a question about so you mentioned the idea of sort of force epistemic domination uh, and sort of argument uh, and and how these you know they have sort of uh, there's like patriarchal connotations to the to these concepts or, um, and they involve authority and things like that. And I suppose what sort of stops the the arguments you're making from having that same charge? You know, you're trying to convince us presumably of you know the epistemic authority of the position you're putting forward. So like we're still within philosophy, right? And so I'm curious, like, what is there anything distinctive about the fact that you're proposing this project and that this sort of philosophical undertaking has, as opposed to the sort of like axiomatic stuff you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Okay. So as I take your question, it's basically kind of the question of how do I myself argue this or do this kind of argumentation if I am not myself like trying to have kind of this, this epistemic authority, right? This, right. This, yeah, I mean, this is a great question. I ask myself this constantly, <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to to actually kind of, and this is also the reason why I why I choose to work at an intersection between philosophy and cultural studies, because in cultural studies you also have a little bit more freedom in the ways you are expressing your argument, and I think there is a lot more room to kind of say, okay, I am making. A suggestion or I'm making an analysis and I think that this is something totally different than saying okay I'm making an argument and you better accept it or maybe you're just not rational like I'm obviously I'm exaggerating a little bit but just yeah so so right I think there there can be a difference also if you are writing a PhD thesis in how you express the notions that you are putting forth. And I would never say that I think that I am right or that I'm like claiming to, to be more right than someone else. I'm just trying to be part of a movement, basically, that views knowledge um, and knowing kind of through a, through a power critical analysis or, or perspective. And also, I'm obviously like writing out of the social world of women so there is also like situated knowledge that comes into or biographical knowledge that that comes into play with like the theoretical notions and I think that this is something that is just that is just worthy to have philosophical accounts about but not because it is right in like this epistemically forceful sense, but because I think it it makes sense from a political stance actually, and from yeah, 
So do you feel like this this makes sense? But I mean, you you have me there, right? Because this this is a conflict for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I find that answer compelling. Yeah, so I, I wanted to take this in a, a slightly different direction, actually, and picking up on, on something you, you said there, actually, which is the kind of biographical aspect of work in feminist philosophy. Um, it, it's something that you mentioned to us before we recorded, actually, that, that there's... Um, well, you're interested in, I guess, the, the social role of the philosopher doing philosophy. And I guess there's a, a distinct way that this uh, pans out in, in researching feminist philosophy, and in particular, the role of, of the woman doing feminist philosophy. So yeah, one thing I wanted to pick up on, and, and this bears on, on what you had uh, mentioned to us beforehand, is specifically the value, I guess, the normative value of ones being a member of the marginalised group that they're researching do you think that that kind of value exists, whether in, I don't know, maybe a moral or even an epistemic sense, by the same token, whether there's any kind of um, disvalue or anything morally wrong or epistemically wrong with being the researcher of a marginalised group, perhaps when you're not the member of the marginalised group, when perhaps you're the member of the dominant group instead? Hmm. I think this is a very interesting question on numerous levels. I think I feel more comfortable like kind of answering this in the context of like the epistemic relevance because I think I like I don't consider myself to be a moral philosopher at all and I don't usually like use moral kind of um, or normative terms a lot but what I do is obviously like I um, read a lot about and think a lot about like how social roles play into the kind of knowledge that we have and that we can have also and I definitely think that there is epistemic value in basically any kind of social role in the sense that any kind of social role and we we obviously all embody and own a, one social role and all of these create knowledges throughout our lives right and they are often not expressed or addressed as knowledges because they are not like maybe not um, developed in like a scientific sense, but I think they they still are knowledge. So definitely there is knowledge coming from your social role and your life, basically, if you want to put it in more like blatant terms. And I think that there is a value when marginalized people do theory about their own marginalization that basically lies in the fact that situated knowledges and theoretical knowledges can kind of come together. And I think that there can be a lot of power in this. And as to this question of when um, like a member of an or for example, like when when a white person does like race theory or, or decolonial um, theory. And I think this very much like depends on the, the reflection that this person has on their social role within doing the research. So I don't think that this is problematic in and of itself. But I do think that obviously there are kinds of knowledges that this person cannot reach that might be important for their research. And I am obviously also grappling with this because I am as a white woman engaging in decolonial approaches. So I also have this, this kind of conflict. And I think that there's just a need for a very high regard for your social role and the situated knowledges that you do have and that you can have, and also the ones that you cannot have and won't have. Yeah, it's interesting to hear your, I guess, thoughts on, on feminist philosophy and a more practical angle there. And I gather that your work in feminist philosophy takes on a practical angle in a different sphere as well. Um, and in particular, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the petition and the open letter that you wrote not too long ago. 
Yeah, I I will try. <laughs> so basically, like in the um, feminist philosophy, for me is really a lot about kind of noticing the the power structures and like focus on how they are structures and not only interpersonal relationships. And to me, this is this is kind of what connects to like as you said, like the very practical side of things because I think. There's a lot of talk in, in media sometimes about like institutional racism or systemic racism or like the system of patriarchy, right? But I think that it's not clear at all what these words mean. Like what, what does it mean if there is a system of power or a structure of power or institutional power, right? This is not, I don't think that this is clear or accessible at all, these kinds of terms. But I do think that they are very important and that it's very important to make them accessible accessible so that we kind of know where to struggle for the things that that we might want as a society so this this was kind of a, a little bit of a longer like <laughs> a way of of connecting uh, all this but uh, but yeah you mentioned this this open letter that I wrote like two years ago and it was an open letter on the problem of sexual harassment and sexual violence in academia. I made this kind of longer introduction because I wanted to say that basically in this letter, my project or, the, or, or our project really was to kind of focus on how there's a structural element and an institutional element to the problem of sexual harassment in academia and how it is very important to note this. And also we wanted to focus on the problem of sexual harassment as also being an epistemic problem because it makes the academic institution more exclusive and therefore it makes it so that there is a lot of knowledge that is also being excluded via social roles being excluded. And so just to sort of delve into that a bit deeper, so you, you mentioned the sort of the structural element of, of academia and how that contributes to this problem. Could you tell me a bit about what structural elements are contributing to this problem? Because as you say, it, it can be difficult to pin it down, but I'm sure there are some elements to this. So I want to uh, figure out what those are. Yeah. Okay. So usually the way I, I tend to explain this is also we are kind of knowledge because this is obviously where I get a lot of my angles from. And basically I consider um, a structural problem or the structural elements of a problem to be the case or maybe let, let me phrase this differently. I tend to phrase it in, in the way or see it in the light of, well, a problem is structural if the common sense knowledge that surrounds the problem is at the same time what keeps keeps the problem in place. So this might sound a little bit abstract, but I think you can kind of work with this in, in thinking, okay, well, what comes up when the term sexual harassment is being used? Like what kind of connotations does this have? What kind of narratives are usually being put up when this term is being used? Things like, like this. So there are there is always common sense knowledge. There are always things like media narratives connotations of certain words being used or not being used. And when all of this or some of this like enables the, the problem because it invisibilizes the problem or makes it seem more harmless than it actually is, I think this is when you have a structural problem in place. So to maybe like pin this down or make it a little bit more like accessible. So in the um, case of sexual harassment, you often have the problem of victim blaming and a lot of common sense knowledge and a lot of things that are very often being, being said when it comes to the topic of sexual harassment 
can actually be like pinpoint to be victim blaming or or we also have this this tendency to kind of as a culture call sexual harassment flirtation or to kind of make it seem like maybe something can be considered flirting or harassment and maybe it just depends on how sensitive you are right so I'm talking about all these kinds of narratives and these terms with very positive connotations that are sometimes also thrown in there at behaviors that you can also call harassment right and all of this tends to kind of enable the or make it yeah make make space for sexual harassment in the sense that if it is being invisibilized and if it is being normalized then or made to seem like something that that is okay or maybe maybe it is a quirk that someone has right so all these kinds of things that are notions and narratives that tend to like marginalize victims even more and that tend to invisibilize the violence and discrimination as such so and this is something that I think can be said for sexual harassment around like Western society in general. And then there are, and of course, I think like you need to, um, you need to admit that these kind of structures that are in all of society are of course also in academia. And then I also think that there are certain factors in academia that maybe tend to like deepen the problem even more. And, and I think these are mainly like the, the deeply um, high, hierarchical, do you say, like, how do you pronounce it? Hierarchical structures? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like the deeply hierarchical structures that make it so that there is a lot of interpersonal power that can also be, be enacted. And there is a lot of like, silence and silencing from academic institutions happening when it comes to when it comes to victims and very often there are not really like at least in Germany there are often not systems in place for victims to kind of like go to and it's very intransparent what happens if you kind of make a claim that someone did something right so all these kinds of things and in Germany there is not a nothing like a, a general set of rules or a general kind of arrangement that applies when it comes to prevention or also to to reacting when something did happen right so i think yeah this this was just my my way of saying i think there is this structural problem that is also the case in academia and then in academia there are also things specific to academic institutions in Germany, at least, that I think tend to like deepen the, the problem even more so. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. I mean, I guess if, if this is a problem we're going to solve, then understanding what, what that problem looks like and how it's arising, it seems absolutely necessary. Yeah, so with that in mind, um, Cara, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.